so I'm happy to be here. Um, I was going to talk tonight about, or I still am, going to talk tonight about socially engaged Buddhism. And it's a topic that's really dear to my heart. It's something that I've been pursuing, as um, Jim mentioned, for the last, really, the last 10, 15 years. And it's, um, it's a topic that I think is so important to, uh, to practitioners because, and it's not for everyone, I will say that, it's not for everyone, that some people it's not so interesting to you in your practice. And I really um, say, I think that's completely fine. And I, it's just, it's sort of where my energy goes and my interest goes. And so I thought I'd spend some time talking about it because we live in dark times. You know, we live in kind of in, in times where there's so much confusion and darkness. There's war, there's poverty, there's injustice, there's violence. And we come to these meditation centers to meditate, to practice, to deepen our own inner understanding. And often the question arises, well, then what does this have to do with, um, with the world, with the suffering in the world? And does sitting on the cushion really make, um, really have anything to do at all? And my answer, of course, is absolutely yes. The, the last little piece I'll say before I begin is that um, your politics don't have to be my politics. So I want to welcome everyone here, no matter sort of where, where you are in the range of the political spectrum, because it's really about asking the question, what does our own inner work have to do with work in the world? I was involved with activism for a very long time. I was an activist from when I was quite young and doing all sorts of political work for years. And then somewhere in my early 20s, I encountered Buddhism. And when I encountered Buddhism, I just fell in love with it. I sort of jumped headlong into it. And when I did that, I started creating all these notions of what it meant to be a Buddhist. So I thought because I was a Buddhist, it meant that I um, had to meditate all the time and I couldn't really, um, I couldn't be an, if I was an activist, that would be a problem because activists are angry, you know, and, and I'm a Buddhist, I'm trying to be peaceful and I can't be, I can't be passionate about something. I have to be really, um, you know, very much a, a, a very sweet, peace-loving, but peace in the inner peace sense loving Buddhist. And so what I did was I devoted a lot of energy to my meditation practice and basically put the, the activism on hold, which seemed like the right thing to do for a time until I began to realize that I felt quite fragmented. I felt like a part of me had been cut off and I didn't quite know what it meant to bring them together. Very early on in my practice, I had a, the wonderful opportunity to meet the Dalai Lama. And I went to, um, I was living in Dharamsala, India, which is where he is, and I was doing a meditation retreat, and everyone on our retreat got to go meet with him. And so there were about 40 of us crammed into this little room, and we had to write our questions in advance. And so because I was new to Buddhism and I had done all this activism work, I wanted to ask him a question about the relationship between Buddhist practice and social change. And he said, um, and so he got the question, but what they did is they kind of changed the question 
I don't quite, I can't exactly remember why they were doing this, but they tried to retranslate it. And what he eventually got, the question he got was, can politicians meditate? <laughs> and, um, <coughs> and then, <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but anyway. Um, so then he, he, with his characteristic ability to kind of cut through anything, first he said, yes, yes, of course politicians can meditate. And then he said, and then he looked at me, and I swear he looked just at me. I don't really know if he knew I asked the question, but he said, he said, Dharma is service. And it was so beautiful to hear those words. And I think even at the time, I didn't quite understand them. But I want to take the word service and look at it quite broadly. Um, so I, I think we tend to think about there's service and then there's activism. And I live in Berkeley, okay? So activism is the best <laughs> in, this, in this kind of hierarchy of what you're supposed to be doing. But there's... But I think I like to really define service, activism, all of that broadly. Any work that one is doing in the service of um, alleviating suffering can be considered kind of activism, social change work, um, service. I, I mean, I really like to broaden out the definition. So at being an educator or a teacher is in this spirit. Being, um, taking, uh, let's see, Working, this is something that I learned quite a bit from Joanna Macy, where she talks about, she talks about all different range of actions that contribute to making this world a more sane place. And one of these actions, um, she adds, is, is changing hearts and minds. So being someone that in whatever way you do changes hearts and minds, that in itself is a kind of activism. So let's really broaden this category as we think about it, not to water it down, but just so it feels a bit more inclusive and not this kind of Berkeley hierarchy of activism is the best. Um, so what is socially engaged Buddhism? Socially engaged Buddhism is a term that generally refers to the, the intersection of Buddhist thought and teachings and practice with uh, progressive, usually social change. And um, there's a lot to say about it, but I'll say that the origin came from Vietnam and it came from the 1930s, the origin of the word socially engaged Buddhism, from the 1930s with the monastic resistance to, um, to Vietnamese colonialization. And then Thich Nhat Hanh, who I'm sure all of you are familiar with, became sort of the real advocate of this movement. And if you, I've, I'm just always so enchanted by the stories I hear of what it was like in, around in the 1960s and there about where he was training people in engaged Buddhism. He called it engaged Buddhism. He didn't so much say socially engaged Buddhism. But what he had is what he had something called the School for Youth for Social Service, which was this... People, young people would be out in the fields working with, um, with victims of the war. They'd be working with the children who had become orphans, the sick people, the people who had lost their homes. So they would be out doing service work in the midst of the war. And then they would come to the temples to train in Dharma. And so they would be, they would be getting, um, they would be getting this, this, 
this incredible, like imagine coming here, working really hard in your service or, or social change job and then coming here all weekend and training and not only both meditating but also um, learning about what, what, how do these come together? How does service and, social and, and dharma come together? And so he was quite an inspiration. And this is a quote from him. He said, When I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries, or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering under the bombs? After careful reflection, we decided to do both to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? Once there is seeing, there must be acting. Otherwise, what is the use of seeing? It's very beautiful and very inspirational to me, I know, I know over time. So in my journey, I had this period, as I talked about, of feeling very fragmented. And like there was this activist side of me that I didn't tell any, any of my Buddhist friends um, that I had that. And then my Buddhist side of me, I didn't tell any of my activist friends. And I tried to kind of keep it on the side or mostly just stick to my Dharma practice. After some time, it began to feel quite fragmented, like I wasn't whole. And so that's when I began the journey for myself, inspired by people like Thich Nhat Hanh, by Dr. Arya Ratni of Sarvodia in Sri Lanka, by the Dalai Lama, by all these incredible people who I looked up to um, and began to try to understand what would it mean to pull these two things together, Buddhist practice and social change. Out of that has grown you know, years of work with this. I worked with the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. I, um, I designed a program called the Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, which was bring small groups of people forming for six months at a time who are all in the service or social change fields, coming together to practice together, to train together, to study, and to really explore this intersection point of um, how these two fit together. And that program's been going on now almost 10 years, and um, hundreds of people have gone through and had this opportunity to explore this. So engaged Buddhism, socially engaged Buddhism, I prefer the term socially engaged Buddhism because when we say engaged Buddhism, anything could be engaged Buddhism. So I'm a Buddhist, and I'm brushing my teeth with mindfulness, so I'm engaging my Buddhism. Or I'm, I, being with my family is engaged Buddhism, which is great. Um, when you add socially engaged, it's like it adds another dimension to it in my mind. It's not a movement. It's more of a kind of loose set of individuals, sanghas, organizations, institutions and people all around this country, um, in, in Canada, in Europe, and of course in Asia, where many of like the, some of the most amazing people have, um, have been a big influence on this, on this so-called, or let's not call it a movement, but um, loose set of individuals and people, um, organizations. It, the, when we look at the Buddhist teachings, the, Buddhist, the Buddha was very, very concerned with individual liberation. 
He did give social teachings. The social teachings, in my mind, are not nearly as kind of dynamic and interesting as the individual liberation. How do we free ourselves from greed, hatred, and delusion? Here's how we do it. Very specific path. When he talked about what was going on socially, it wasn't, he would sort of say, okay, if you're a king, you should make sure to treat your subjects fairly and be generous. And if you're a landowner, be generous, but save money for your children. I mean, there, was, there were some teachings. Meanwhile, the Buddha himself was an incredible um, example in some sense. I mean, this is one way of looking at it, of engaged Buddhism, in the sense that he brought, he started an order for women, that he brought people of all different castes and backgrounds into the Sangha. That's quite revolutionary. He had slaves, former slaves, who became monks and nuns. People from the wealthiest to the poorest, and all living, living together in, this, in the monastic order. So this is quite, in some ways, I think, quite revolutionary. But his teachings were not so much about engagement with the world because of this real explicit interest in internal liberation. So... What I believe is that engaged Buddhism is a, it, it's something that our times demand. It's something that being alive in this moment, in this, as I said earlier, in this kind of darkness that asks of us how do we take these teachings off the cushions from this inner focus and ask how do we take it, how do we focus outward? And how can, the way that I see it is that my internal liberation is intimately connected with the world. That we don't do this practice alone. That, first of all, as we transform, there's an impact on the world. There's an, I mean, you see this yourself. As you are working on yourself, there is, an, there is an inner transformation happening. It's impacting your family. It's impacting your friends. It's impacting your coworkers. And we have to assume that it's making rippling effects out into the world. Also, this, what, the way that I see it is that my inner transformation is affecting the world in the sense that my, my external work becomes a pathway towards liberation when seen in the context of, of, the, of the Buddhist teachings. So that it's not this separate thing. It's not like, okay, there's the activism on one side and then there's the Dharma practice on the other. But it's actually a path of practice that through the act of generosity, through determination, through working out of compassion, all of that can become, can actually influence my Dharma practice and become a pathway to my own awakening and the awakening of all beings. So I see it as this very beautiful kind of circle of inner and outer, working to affect my own change, working to affect change on others. And the more, I, the, the more, um, act, more things change externally, the more work I do, it then has an impact on my inner life, on my sitting. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute. One of the most interesting um, sort of the, the archetype that speaks to me most in the Dharma world is the archetype of the Bodhisattva. 
So those of you who are familiar with the Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva is in, in Mahayana Buddhism, is this being who has a commitment to waking up for the sake of all beings. So that his or her practice is not this isolated thing, but it's actually in, in this large community. That the, in some, it, when it's sometimes talked about, this being refuses to um, leave the cycle of birth and rebirth and will stay in order to help all beings. So Shanti Deva, who's the eighth century, um, the eighth century sort of mystic, and he wrote the book called The Bodhisattva's Guide to Life. And he says these vows like, for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I stay to dispel the misery of the world. So beautiful. Another translation that I love of it is, for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. And I like to interpret the Bodhisattva not as some idealized being, something that you and I could never possibly be like. I like to call it the ordinary Bodhisattva. That the ordinary bodhisattva is the archetype for me for the engaged Buddhist. For the Buddhist who is both doing the inner work and interested also in outer transformation. And that, um, that whatever it is, whatever your heart is drawn to, and I really want to stress this because some people say, you know, I'm not an activist, I'm not interested, or I'm too busy, or my life is very, you know, it's full, I'm so busy with my kids, or whatever it is. So I really want to encourage the sense that one can be a bodhisattva, an ordinary bodhisattva, in whatever way makes sense to you, by asking the question, what do I care about? And how do I really commit to that and see this as a path towards waking up? And in my case, it's this engaged path. But I, I just, just, just let yourself think and see about where do you feel drawn, where do you feel your external work in the world manifests or gives you, is an expression of your inner work, in a sense? What in your life is about waking up that might not be expressly about your, your sort of sitting on the practice cushion? It's just something to, it's something to think about. And I like to take these bodhisattva vows every morning. Sometimes I make up my own. Sometimes I repeat things that Shantideva, that, that Shantideva quote I just gave you. So I'll give a few examples of ways that we might bring our Dharma practice into working as, um, in, with social change. And these are principles that I like to use that help us think about, help us actualize it. So one of the principles is mindfulness in action. And this can be, you know, again, you can interpret it in whatever way makes sense to you. But for me, I have taken mindfulness off the cushion and brought it into my social action. And, this, and there's been a whole range of me doing this. So one example might be years ago I was working at a center, a clinic, where there were um, a lot of homeless people or people who were quite poor. And, um, and I had one, my job, one of my jobs was I would visit with different people and do kind of like home visits and check in on people. And I, was, I had this job where I was to visit with this woman, and I really began to hate it. 
Okay, so she was very poor, lived in this apartment that was, she smoked, she chain smoked cigarettes. So I would go to her apartment and I would just be miserable. It would be filled with cigarette smoke. And she was, um, and she would talk and talk and talk. And I would sit there thinking that I was doing good, you know, because I, I had this, my heart is good. I'm here to do service. I really need to listen to her. And this is my work. And it's, it's, um, you know, I was kind of deluding myself. So, so I would sit there and I would just get bored and bored and I would yawn and I would practically fall asleep and she would talk and talk and I would be kind of nauseated and the smoke and the, you know, it was just, it was an unpleasant situation in general. And I did this for, I don't know, months. And finally, at some point, it dawned on me and said, Diana, you know, this is not the way to wake up. This is not the way to help her wake up and this is not the way for your own waking up. So what what could you do? And then I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take her as my, main, my primary object of meditation. So instead of the breath, it became Barbara. So I went in to see her the next day, and I sat, and I sat down on um, a chair in front of her, and she started talking. And I noticed my mind getting bored. So I say, oh, boredom, coming back to the present moment, the present moment being full presence with her awareness of her, being fully with her. Since she talked a little more, I noticed myself getting sleepy. I said, oh, a sloth and torpor, sleepiness, sleepiness, coming back to the present moment. And then after a while, I noticed hating. Oh, aversion. This is really unpleasant. Hate, oh, hating, 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 come back to the present moment. And I just kept doing that, and I kept doing it and bringing myself back. And ultimately, it was like consciousness shifted and I could be with it. I could be fully present with her. And it was like, it was such a revelation in seeing, you know, when, you, when you're in a situation that's unpleasant and confronting a kind of suffering that can be quite painful, is how to, is how to use the practice in a way that can be really useful. I've also brought the mindfulness in in more activist type situations, being in protests. Or um, and trying to be mindful, you know, and inviting the people with me. Can you be? Can you be more mindful? Usually, I'm doing this with Buddhists, not random people off the street, right? But um, or doing. We've done pro, we've done different kind of demonstrations that involve sitting meditation in the midst of a cr- really intensely, uh, you know, angry and um, loud protest. There's been 200 Buddhists sitting there meditating. It's quite amazing. Now, people often say, well, did it do anything? I don't have the answer to that. That's part of being a Buddhist activist is not knowing. <laughs> you know, not holding so tightly to your assumptions about what's, what's going to lead to different kinds of results. Um, which is just reminding me, I just want to read a story because I love this story. Which I didn't bring. Okay, never mind. <laughs> The story was about, I'll remember it, the story was about hope. And it was about how a woman, this is kind of speaking to the question of, of does this do any good or how do you know if it does any good. This woman did, um, used, to, used to be protesting nuclear arms long before it became kind of fashionable to protest nuclear arms. And so she would go out with like maybe five of her friends and they'd stand and she has this vivid memory of standing in the pouring rain. Well, the rain is pouring down and she's just, they're, they're holding up signs and they're protesting and there's like five of them and she just is so kind of miserable. 
Years later, she heard Benjamin Spock speak, and he did a lot of um, anti-nuclear work. And he said, he said, you know, I didn't really want to get involved with this, but I thought, I thought, you know, maybe I should because, um, and I, and he, he had seen this woman and her five friends holding signs up in the middle of the rain. And that influenced him, who became a very influential speaker and um, person in the movement. So this one little act of her going out in the rain with her five friends had an impact that she had no idea would happen. So anyway, it's just a little side story that I was reading recently. There's... um, Another aspect of doing this practice, doing, um, doing social engagement from a Buddhist perspective is really working on not demonizing the enemy, not making this be about us, them. So how do I take what I learn on the cushion, which teaches me how much, how much is in my head, how much is projection, and how, much, how, how people are not inherently anything, and really seeing the interdependence, seeing how connected we all are, and not hating a particular politician or a person that I'm fighting, so-called fighting against. And this is a tremendously difficult practice, but also quite valuable. I had it, um, I had an experience a few years ago. I was, let's see. We were protesting at um, the Nevada Desert test site. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there, but it's um, basically it's, it's where they're doing now. They're doing underground explosions and um, testing nuclear weapons. And I had gone with a Buddhist affinity group, a group of people, and we went and we did this sort of ceremony out in front of the line where people cross over the line and get arrested by the cops. And the police were... Um, they seemed to me kind of angry and annoyed and not liking us because we were the peace-loving hippies and they were the, um, you know, they were protecting the order. And so we had all this projection around the cops and they're, we don't like them. And anyway, so, so it became very much us against them, even though this was a Buddhist group. It's really easy to get into that trap. And one of the people crossed the line and the cops got really mad because he thought we weren't going to cross the line. And it was just, it just was this whole sort of us-them thing. And Just as we were getting ready to leave, my friend comes down to where we were in front of the police and said, you know what, I'm really embarrassed to say this, but I locked the keys in the car. (laughs) And I thought, oh no, what are we going to do? Well, what do you think we did? (laughs) We had to ask the policeman to help us. (laughs) And at first they were a little standoffish and kind of, you know, well, I don't know, I'm going to have to see. But... But, um, but they helped us, and they changed from being our enemy to being our friend in almost in, in a second. And it's so amazing. You know when you do the metta practice and you see that someone can be an enemy, someone, someone we can have these negative feelings, and then we can have feelings of loving kindness for it. And it was this, it was this moment of seeing my practice in action, seeing the way I create enemies, seeing how that's a false delusion and letting love and understanding arise in its place. And that moment of seeing that allowed my practice to get better in a sense, 
my own waking up was affected, as well as um, my relationships with these people. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a vast circle of practice. And I think maybe I'll stop now, but just to say, let me just end with this really great quote. Hang on. This just sums up um, kind of the basis of, of socially engaged Buddhism. And this is from Santikaro Bhikkhu, who is one of the translators of Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu. And um, he's, he's sort of a main person in the movement. He said, these days I'm thinking that socially engaged Buddhism is to be found in those with a solid Dharma practice, not just fuzzy, nice intentions, who can bring it to bear on social issues in real life situations. When Dharma practice can give, what Dharma practice can give is enough mindfulness to be <coughs> present in the moment, enough non-bias to see the situation from various angles, including one's own inner dynamics, enough compassion to want to end suffering, enough wisdom to understand the major relationships at play, interpersonal and intrapersonal, and enough effort to do something effective on these grounds. So that's a little bit of a taste of engaged Buddhism for you. And we have some time if anyone has any questions. I know I'm kind of just touching into a subject that's really quite vast. And so I just wanted to kind of give you a little doorway in tonight. So, Yes? Yes, um, he asked about conflict within activist groups and how Buddhism can help. I'm really glad you asked because I, I left that piece out in a sense and I, and I wanted to say something about it. I think that a lot of people get disillusioned with activism because of the very thing you're talking about, that there is a lot of conflict and backbiting and... Um, you know, anger and kind of violent attitude that you might find within some activist groups. And that very often they're really not embodying the values that they're espousing. And um, it's painful. It's quite painful to see that. And one of the things that, that I've been part of over the years is, is, is training activists in sort of disguised Buddhism. <laughs> And I say it, I say it kind of jokingly, but we we lead retreats for activists that are contemplative retreats, and they're usually a combination of um, of meditation, being in some place beautiful in nature. Often we do this in a place called Vallecitos in New Mexico, and um, and and dialogue, so that these activist organizations, the people in it, can get in touch with their values and their um, and the reason that they're doing the work. Because so much of that happens because people are disconnected from from why they even started doing it in the first place. And most nonprofits I know are under a huge amount of pressure financially, <laughs> time-wise. They're also trying to do something enormous in the and have only limited resources. <coughs> So I'm really interested in this question of how do we take the wisdom of the Dharma and bring it into both into the organizations and then this added piece for me currently is into the left in general. 
So after the election, with um, moral values being this big issue of um, why is theoretically Bush won, right? Um, I'm really curious about how can we think about the Dharma as as a kind of value system that can be offered to the greater political social arena. And I think the Dalai Lama is incredible for saying things like, okay, kindness is my religion. You know, that makes it very, very easy and easy to understand rather than being Buddhist. That's why I just say disguised Buddhism. Yeah? You were sitting, um, going to visit the woman who was chain smoked mm-hmm. and talked all the time. Well, I think we need the mic. <laughs> when, when you went to see the woman who chain-smoked all the time and you switched from feeling bored and annoyed to being mindful, mm-hmm. was that helpful to her? Yes, absolutely, because um, suddenly my heart and my being was there. You know, Before that, I was just trying to get through the hour. But once the mindfulness came, it was like my whole relationship to her shifted because I was fully present and she could feel it and sense it. And our friendship, in a sense, grew from there. Yeah. How, how did that help her, though? Did it, you mean, did it get her out of her poverty or did it? Um, in this particular situation, she needed attention and a, a, like a friend. She was very, very, very isolated. And my goal wasn't to kind of, I mean, my main goal was to just be present for her. That was, so I think that was beneficial. Yeah. There's someone behind you. Oh, okay. Um, okay. So a big question I have about um, Buddhism and politics is um, uh, what is elitism? And that's, I think, a charge that's being, um, it's kind of come up in the aftermath of the election, and I think it's pretty right on um, that, that voting, that a lot of people were voting against elitism. And, and so I was wondering if you could talk about, like, like how, um, I, uh, have you thought about that at all? Or, or, um, I've, I've thought about it not so much in relation to Buddhism per se, but tell me, say a little bit more about where you're heading with that. Well, um, um, basically, like my interactions with people who are on the other side of my politics, I, I feel like um, that, that we're, I mean, we're of course like talking past each other a lot, but that they have a perception that they're, that, that, um, people who are socially progressive are basically living in la-la land. Mm. <laughs> and from, I mean, I can't say they're wrong. I don't know if they're wrong or mm-hmm. not. And uh, so I'm, like, really curious about this whole thing. Like, well, maybe maybe we are, like, kind of deluded in some ways. If we don't, um, like, we have a lot here. This mm-hmm. sangha, I mean, we have a lot. And that, yeah. like, may shift our perspective about what matters. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I think it's I think it's a great question. I also think that there's a lot about the way I'm going to be really political here for a second. <laughs> the way that um, the right has framed elitism, so that actually, although many people who are in power and who are who are creating policies for people in power who are quite elite, are framing it as though the left, who are looking for 
I mean, who are trying to do a lot of policies that are about the common good and compassion and justice and ethics, like they're elitist. And I actually think that that's a huge misconception and misunderstanding. I've been very interested, and I'll just add this last little piece, I've been very interested in George Lakoff's work, for any of you who are familiar, who's talking about what he calls framing and the way that the right, can, in a sense, owns the discourse. And we, um, the left, sorry, I shouldn't say we, and I really do want to say, I'm sorry if there are people here who don't think the way I do, but anyway, I'm just going to continue, <laughs> is that um, the left the left is always in reaction and always saying, no, no, we're not elitist. No, it's not the liberal media elite. No, it's, you know, and um, whereas the right, you know, it doesn't get more elite than Texan millionaires and billionaires, you know, so as far as I'm concerned. So anyway, I know this is a Dharma hall. We're not going to say things like that. <laughs> but I, know if, I don't know if that's helpful, but... but I, I think, I, I don't know if it's useful to think about it as like a misconception anymore. It's just to me, like, they, if, if all these millions of majority of Americans believe it, I mean, like, at what point are are we having misconceptions? Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I think I think just to follow up on what you're saying, I think it's really, really important. And this is something I do as a Buddhist activist, <laughs> is to try to have a lot of flexibility with my views and understanding so that it's easy. I mean, it, when you're involved in politics, it's really easy to say I'm right and to want to kind of hold on to that really tightly. And the problem is, one, you may be wrong, but two, it's like when you bring in the dharma into it, it's like there's your mind clinging around a view and thinking you're right and holding tightly. So for me, it's about kind of opening that up, bringing in a bit of the not knowing mind and being willing to be wrong, being willing to be flexible, to question, to dialogue, to go towards reconciliation. I mean, I'm really interested in those questions. So what you're saying may be true, and I mean, I'm not, we're not going to sit here and like, try to figure it out because we won't know, but, but I think the important piece is what you're saying in, in having a much more open-minded view around it that the Dharma can help us kind of support, if that makes sense. Yeah. Someone in the back, and I know there's someone over there. Oh, we don't have a lot more time, but... Uh, one thing that might um, add to add to this is that um, clinging to views causes a lot of suffering, even when you're right. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the other thing I want to mention is that, as it happens, I've been reading a book called uh, Instructions to the Cook hmm. by Bernie Glassman, and it's very much about this same topic. And I would recommend it to anyone who's who's interested in social activism. Thanks. Um, in fact, now that's going to segue into, I brought, for those of you who are interested, I have a couple of bibliographies on engaged Buddhism and a, an article that I have from, uh, that I wrote on being a bodhisattva, how to embody that in our life. And then I brought some books, just so you can look through it if you want, as soon as this is over. On um, well, This book is called Engaged Buddhism in the West, and there's a companion vol- volume of Engaged Buddhism around uh, the world. Um, this is a new book that just came out that's um, called Hooked, Buddhist Writings on Greed, Desire, and the Urge to Consume. 
And it's, it's really terrific. There's a lot of great uh, articles. And Joseph Goldstein's in there and Pema Chodron and all these people. And then this is a book on, on engaged Buddhism that's an anthology of the Buddhist Peace Fellowships magazine. And I brought a few copies, which whoever's up here fast enough and first can take them. And... Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I meant to pick up more flyers, but this is information about the Buddhist Peace Fellowship if you're interested, and there, maybe there's some out there already. And then I brought a few, just a couple copies of my own book. So that's the show-and-tell version <laughs> of, portion, I mean, of this evening. And you end at 9, right? Okay, so let's just end with um, a few minutes of meditation. So just maybe take a minute to ask yourself the question, what do I care about in the world? And then the next question is, how is my Dharma practice expressed in the world? And then if there's any, if you feel comfortable or want to, any sort of commitment to continuing that expression, whatever words make sense to you. For as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. Thank you.